You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Aji Buso Jing, who is currently a research scientist at Google AI and will be starting as an assistant professor at Princeton University in 2021. Her research focuses on combining probabilistic graphical modeling and deep learning to design models for structured, high-dimensional data and on developing methods for fitting these models. Aji's PhD thesis is titled Deep Probabilistic Graphical Modeling, which she completed in 2020 at Columbia University. We discuss her work on combining graphical models and deep learning, including models that incorporate ideas from topic modeling, as well as two algorithms, reweighted EM, which both unifies and improves upon existing methods, and entropy regularized adversarial learning, which provides a solution to the mode collapse issue that is common in generative adversarial networks. Throughout, we discuss the value of probabilistic modeling and interpretability, as well as applications and making an impact through research. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can contribute a dollar at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Aji Buso Jing with Deep Probabilistic Graphical Modeling on the Thesis Review. So your PhD was in the Department of Statistics, and it deals with topics in machine learning. What are some similarities and differences between statistics and machine learning? It's It's the focus on what matters that I think is different. They are both interested in learning from data. Mm-hmm. In statistics, there's an emphasis on confidence intervals, um, parameter estimation, uh, hypothesis testing, so testing hypotheses. Whereas mm-hmm. for machine learning, it's more about computation, like so scale matters, prediction there's a heavy emphasis on prediction in machine learning. So I would say that those are the two main uh, differences. Otherwise, the boundary between machine learning and statistics is very blurry. Because even now in machine machine learning research, there's hypothesis testing going on or interpreting certain approaches as doing two sample tests and things like that, like the GAN approaches. So yeah, the boundary is blurry. But I see, yeah. And yeah, you can consider prediction and computation being a heavy focus, more heavier focus on machine learning than on statistics and and having confidence in, in your predictions and parameter estimation being more um, testing hypothesis being more of a focus in statistics than than in, in, in machine learning. Yeah, I see that makes sense. There's also oh, I didn't say in statistics, people People uh, care about what happens in when you go in the asymptotics mm. and, and, and coming up with uh, theories to understand estimators for data that you come up with that you see less in the machine learning community. There's also that, yeah. Do you think that some of these things like hypothesis testing and the asymptotics, have those played a role in your day-to-day research or does it really depend on kind of what your specific research is, maybe like what group you're in, what advisor you're with. And day-to-day, it might actually be kind of similar to someone who's doing this from a computer science perspective. For me, um, I was in a very specific situation doing the research that I was doing in a statistics department. But I think that was actually a leverage compared to if I was doing it in a in a computer science department. And that's reflected in my dissertation and how I think about problems and methods for learning from data. 
So then maybe going back to before your PhD, did you always have an affinity towards quantitative things like statistics and mathematics? Yes, quantitative, yes. But an interest in machine learning uh, starting uh, to take... Uh, Already in, when I was in France, I, you know, you have to take, there are common courses that they call Tonkoma that you take in your first year of engineering school. Then after that, you focus on, on something. So after the Tonkoma I focused on, there was this module called the statistical learning theory and, anal, and another module about information systems. I took those two modules. I specialized on those two. So I was, I was, um, I was uh, focused on, you know, uh, statistics, machine learning-ish, and computer science. Mm -hmm. I see. Then my interest in focusing more particularly in machine learning peaked when I was uh, working at the World Bank, finishing there. Um, I was doing risk modeling, which has nothing to do with what I'm doing now. But I was hearing, you know, the impact of machine learning in the world. And what I was doing day to day started becoming repetitive. So it was the right moment for me to start a PhD, focusing on statistical machine learning. Before you were at the World Bank, did you have the idea in mind to, to do research and to do the PhD? Or was it really that experience at the World Bank, which um, kind of led you to do research? Yeah, it's the impact of machine learning that was becoming more and more apparent in the world. When I was finishing engineering school, so I did engineering school in France. Third year of engineering school, you can spend it abroad. That's how I spent it at Cornell. I finished and then I was like, okay, I need to get a job and do something useful. So that's how I went to the World Bank. Mm -hmm. That was my idea of doing something useful and actually having an impact in Africa, whatever. Um, so one year in, I learned everything that I could learn from, from that job. And I realized that I can have more impact by doing machine learning because of everything else that I was reading. So that was the motivation. But going out of uh, engineering school, I didn't want to do research. I wanted to actually do work that matters. But I later realized that you can have impact through research, which is why I started my PhD. The title of your thesis is Deep Probabilistic Graphical Models. But when you were starting, would you have had any idea that this would be what you would focus on? Or No, I didn't know. I see. Um, I, I started a program. You know, Columbia Statistics, they have a very structured program. It's like first year you do your, your, your um, qualification exams. You have to pass them. If you, if you don't pass them, you'll get kicked out. You, you, you given another chance, but you, you'll get kicked out. So first year, I focused on passing my quals. I passed them, luckily. And then took a course with my now two advisors, Dave, who was teaching a course called uh, Progressive Graphical Modeling. Wait, Foundations of Progressive Graphical Modeling. That was the exact name of the course. He's still teaching it every fall. And my, my co-advisor, John Paisley, who was teaching Bayesian... Bayesian modeling in machine learning, mm -hmm. something like that. And those two courses were very complementary. Dave's course was an overview of probability graphical modeling, the formalism, and how it fits into the uh, larger, um, larger probability machine learning literature. Whereas John's course was more focused on inference and making connections between those inference procedures. So. Those two courses are really what sparked my research into latent variable models and what I did on my thesis, deep probability graphical modeling. So really focusing on the uh, requirements starting out and then actually the coursework helped, uh, yeah, get you interested in these. Yeah, yeah. I know that I wanted to do machine learning, but I didn't know exactly what. Yeah, that seems to be a common theme across these interviews that when people look back at what their thesis eventually ends up being about. Mm -hmm. uh, I think almost in all cases, uh, no one has said that they knew exactly what they ended up doing. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Because you want to keep an open mind. That's how right. yeah, you can contribute to the literature. Because you, yeah. I guess we could start going through this, the thesis. So first, what is a deep probabilistic graphical model? 
it's a set of methodologies. Let me define deep probability graphical modeling. And then a deep probability graphical model is an instance of that. But it's a set of methodologies where you are within the framework of probability graphical modeling. So you want to take inductive biases and express them in terms of a generative process or a directed acyclic graph like you do in probability graphical modeling. And that gives you interpretability, that gives you um, that gives you a way of a way to express uncertainty. Now, with deep probability graphical modeling, you take approaches and innovations from deep learning within that framework to enjoy the flexibility that deep learning offers, both in terms of specifying a model, so leveraging neural networks, or actually doing inference, which is what backpropagation gives you. It's very flexible. So the idea is to leverage deep learning within probability graphical modeling. And do you remember at the time when you started working on these, kind of where was the idea of using deep learning for graphical models? Did they seem kind of very separate things? Because I know like nowadays, everyone kind of tries to use deep learning with everything. So if yeah. you can maybe think back to like, what was it like when you were getting started? Yes, there were, there were these, I started in 2014. So if you think back, that's when the VAE paper and the GAN paper came out. Mm -hmm. But at that time, you know, I was getting into probability graphical modeling. Remember the two courses I mentioned? So it seemed to me that the most important thing at the time was come up with better um, inference algorithms. So my very first paper was on an approach to doing approximate posterior inference with latent variable models. Now, um, fast forward a year later, I'm getting more interested in what was happening in the deep learning community. And these two seem to be seem to have been going in parallel, you know, PGM and then deep learning. And then the VAE came out, which seemed to be bridging the two. But there were still some missing pieces in the sense that the VAE, if you take it and look at it at its, at its core, is just a factor model, a nonlinear factor model. But there, which is which is just one instance of probability gravity. But there are so many more families of models within the probability graphical modeling community that were not combined with deep learning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So that's what differentiates it. It's not just taking a latent per latent one latent variable per observation and then parameterizing it with a neural network and doing inference. It's 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 more about okay, give me data. I have inductive biases. Let me set up a generative process which gives me interpretability of, from the get-go and let me see now how I can leverage, you know, neural networks are one tools for deep learning. There are other things, how I can leverage those things within this formalism. So it's a bit different. There are overlaps, but it's a bit different. You mentioned um, working on uh, an inference procedure. Did you maybe just want to give an overview of the kind of standard method for training so this amortized variational inference right just because it might give some good background for probably some other things that we'll talk about right amortization came a bit after the first inference algorithm i worked on was on you know a regular latent variable model you have your data that you call for example x say say sex and then you have latent variables z that capture the structure underlying the data or that's what you posit for it to be and you want to learn those latent variables. And so I like variational inference. There are many ways you can learn. Um, you can learn the posterior or the your posterior distribution of the latent variables given the data. But I like variational inference in that it's modular. I'll, I'll get to that. But also because it's optimization-based, and I was familiar with that. So the first thing I worked on was, say, variational inference. How does variational inference work? You say... Let me posit a family of distributions uh, to approximate the true posterior that I do not know. And let me learn the parameters of that family by minimizing a divergence between the true posterior and that, that, that family of distribution that you specify. Mm -hmm. And so you have a choice on what the family is, what the family you choose is. I'm, I'm going to the modularity that I just mentioned. You have a choice over what divergence you choose to optimize and the algorithm for how you, you, you optimize that. So my work was on 
choosing a different divergence that than what was being used at the time, which is the reverse KL from the approximate posterior distribution and the true distribution. I looked at the family of divergences that were out there. This was me drawing from my statistics background. So there's this divergence called the chi-square divergence, mm. which uh, when you when you plug in your approximate posterior in the true posterior, you end up with actually having to minimize an upper bound of the log marginal likelihood of the data. And so that was the interesting part. It was like, oh, we can actually, I have these lower bounds that, that people are, opti- are maximizing, but with this divergence, you end up with an upper bound. That might be, that's, that's super interesting. I found that interesting because it was deviating from what was there. And, and yeah, having an algorithm that minimizes that. I would say that, that that's the that's the first thing. But then amortization came and I, that deviated me a little bit from looking further into approximate inference algorithms because amortization it just works and it scales and everything. Yeah. So then, like the elbow that people might be familiar with uh, with VAEs, that is kind of derived using the KL divergence. Why specifically do we use the KL divergence? Is it for like historical reasons or computational reasons? It's mainly computational. You can you're not bound to any you're not bound to any divergence. You can choose anything uh-huh. that that's tractable. But now that I you know with with looking looking back, the KL is is the is the best thing you can do in terms of. It's just stable. It's just more stable than the chi-square, for example. And even though you end up with, for example, recovering only one mode, if you specify a single mode approximate posterior by maximizing the elbow, that, that works on a lot of applications and, and, and it's just good enough. So I would say computation is the main reason why people have stuck with the elbow. Yeah, that makes sense. So those are kind of the core components. And then I would say the thesis is structured as coming up with different models and then coming up with different algorithms. Yes. So maybe we could start with one of the models, the topic RNN. Yes. Did you want to just talk about how you got interested and how you started working on on the topic RNN? It was it was from an internship at Microsoft Research. I was working with Chong Wang and Jianfeng Gao. Mm-hmm. And the idea was let's try to see how we can marry recurrent neural networks and topic models. And if you see those two family of models are from the two communities that I that I was working with. So RNNs were the rave, LSTMs the rave in the deep learning community when it comes to language models, just sequence modeling in general. And topic models are one of the most important families of models in the progressive graphical modeling communities extended to different uh, domains and yeah, because of its interpretability. So we were like, okay, how can we bring these two approaches to modeling sequences, to modeling um, text data? Mm-hmm. And wearing my PGM hat, I was like, okay, let me look at a paragraph, a document. If I wanted to generate a sequence how would i go about it so you boil down the problem to how do you generate the next word after observing few words and then it was election time as well (laughs) so i picked one excerpt from from cnn this is the one that i always use i also added it to my dissertation because i think it's just very illustrative for how the model came to be then you pick a word the word that, that 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 i picked was American president or something, and you see how you could predict it with very high certainty that this must be the word or any synonym of that word. And the realization was that, okay, to predict this, of course I need the preceding words because any word depends on the word just preceding it. But I also needed more. Just looking at the words that preceded it didn't help in narrowing down the choices. So looking further into longer context, you realize that you actually don't also know sequentiality when you go longer into the context. Mm-hmm. You need those words that, that come in 
in, in teams, right? Right. And so it was like, okay, how do I make sure that I condition on those words? Not needing sequentiality. Of course, if you had a perfect recurrent neural network, you could condition on everything, right? In theory, that's what they do. But in practice, they are known to not be able to capture all that dependency because you need to make um, trade-offs during optimization. If you condition on everything, you'll run into these exploding gradients, these vanishing gradients. So people truncate these sequences when they train. So you lose in the you lose the the ability to capture all the past sequence. And so this was like, okay, this is great. Actually, we don't need sequentiality. So we don't need to force the RNN to capture all of that. It cannot do it anyway. So we just need to find a way to to express this to express the fact that these long-term dependencies for language come in the form of thematic dependencies. And what's a model family that we know in the literature that do, that that does that? Is the topic model? That's what they do exactly. They 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 look at a document and capture group words together in these themes called top called topics. So it was okay, great. This is what we wanted to do. So let's let's write the model. You will have to think about which words do need this long-term context and which words do not. It turns out that the best thing you can do is to let the model itself discover, to let the, when you fit the model, discover what words need these long-term dependencies and what words do not. That would be the best case scenario because beforehand we do not know. But a reasonable assumption was to say, okay, let's take all stop words and assume that they do not know they do not need long term context and that was a good enough assumption in practice in the results that we that we saw and it was also uh, practical so taking all those things all those inductive biases that we that we know pgm allows you to formalize that in terms of conditional conditional distributions composing variables observed or hidden in a in a in a generative process and do inference on the unknowns. So that's how the topic RNN model came about. It's like you can generate a sequence by you first assume that there's this unseen, unobserved latent variable, hidden variable that's shared between all the elements in the sequence. That's that's the theme, you know, the thing that I talked about. And then you generate each word by conditioning on the preceding words and on that shared latent variable. So the conditioning on the preceding word, you can do that with a recurrent neural network. They're good at, you know, local syntax. They do very well on that. So use a recurrent neural network to formalize that and then condition in addition uh, on the on that shared latent variable. You end up with the with the topic RNN. Yeah, that makes sense. Which turned out to be pract- to be useful for many other applications, which is interesting as well. Yeah, a few things I want to, to ask about then. So like First is this notion of topics. So it seems like this is inspired by the LDA type topic yes. models. Yes, that's the canonical topic model. It works very well on many different settings, yeah. You kind of specified the notion of topic through the generative process. Yes. And I guess it's like an empirical thing then that you actually look at what topics are learned and those kind of correspond to our intuitive idea of topics yes just looking at what is being shared what that's supposed to represent when you discover it from data mm-hmm. at a high level that's what it is the topics are shared between like they are the stable quantities if you look at the whole corpus that you have at hand yeah and then for the for the stop words um did you ever try uh, like relaxing this like having the model learn which words should receive the global context? I did try that. I did try looking at, not not assuming that stop words are the are the elements of language that don't need long term context, but like you said, discovering it from from scratch, letting the model learn it. But you end, we ended up with this situation where the model always relied on the recurrent neural network output instead of on on the topic model output and and that that's a problem that keeps coming when you have a mixture model especially when the components 
in the mixture are specified by neural networks. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah so it probably relates to this issue with, um, for example, like autoregressive uh, VAEs where the just the autoregressive part is powerful enough and it kind of ignores the... Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> this notion of like global versus local, what do you think in terms of using uh, something like a transformer versus a recurrent model where maybe the time, the, the notion of time is different in a transformer? Do you think that anything would be different if you made like a topic transformer versus a topic RNN? That's a great question because it gives me the opportunity to say that all the work that I did in my dissertation, leveraging deep learning for first graphical modeling, is agnostic to the choice of the architecture. So 10 years from now, you come up with the most sophisticated neural network architecture that you can. You can still apply the, the idea behind topic RNN. The name is unfortunate because it makes it seem like it's just for RNNs, LSTMs, and the, and the like. But if you look at the generative process, the part where you're capturing, uh, where you where you're trying to capture locality, that's a nonlinear function. It can be it can be any nonlinear function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nice. I would be interested if someone, yeah, does a topic transformer because transformers have actually been shown to also have a long term pro- long term dependency problem, which led people to come up with this transformer Excel and other versions. So I would be interested to see what you get when you apply the same same generative process but using a transformer as a as a neural net parametrization. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. And it seems like in a lot of these interviews there's new ideas that come up and I think as long as people cite this interview then it should be good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned this being useful for other applications. Did you maybe want to talk about some of those? Yes, I can actually give you the context because that was something that motivated me even more for even what I want to do in the future. In the future, I was giving a talk at IBM Research, and there was this lady from the audience who came up to me after and said, "You know, topic RNN. I think it would be perfect for my medical data." And I said, "Tell me more. <laughs> I would be, I would be interested in hearing that." And then she. We we discussed her data and it was, it had the same, you, you can put it in the same framework as documents. For example, the medical data that, that she had was you have a set of patients and they go to the hospital uh, at, at, at different times. But one patient goes to the hospital P time. So they do, they have P visits. Each visit, there's, an aggregate of some uh, medical test that's conducted or a questionnaire or a, 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 a me, a, uh, some medication that's given to them. You, you embed all of that into a representation and you represent the patient as a sequence of visits. And you can apply topic on that on that data, each patient as a sequence of, 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 of visits and model hospital readmission which was observed and it turned out to work very well in terms of learning patient representations and and hospital readmission prediction just by casting a patient as a document i see so what would uh, maybe i missed it like what would the analogy to the topic distribution be in this case it's that each patient has a has something that's inherent to them and that's the global context, which which is there, which is there over all the visits. And you want to take into account the event that happened from the previous visits at any given visit. So that's where the sequentiality comes in. Mm-hmm. So when 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 predicting readmission, you have to you basically cast it as a classification problem, but where the logic is given by a combination of a contribution of the local context, which is when you use the RNN to condition on the previous visits via its hidden state. And also the second contribution was given by, you know, this global vector that was shared by 
that was shared by all visits, which is what's specific to that patient. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so it seems like in general, this is giving you a way of designing some indu- inductive biases for yeah. a certain process here. It's like the hospital yes. admissions. Yes. So do you think that like, or like the purpose of having the inductive bias is maybe to reduce the amount of training data? Do, do you think that these probabilistic models might require less data than, I don't know, just training some neural network to do this prediction? There, it's what you say. There's a, it's, a, it's a way of, you know, um, having faster training because then the neural network can focus on discovering other parts than, the, than actually having to learn everything from scratch. But more importantly is that it gives you a way to control. It gives you some level of control as to what you, the things you know that they are, they are, they, they are supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. The type of we know that there each patient has their own. They have a latent variable that's specific to them. Yeah, yeah, and we know that these visits they depend on each other because the way you feel when when you visit a doctor right now and the the medication that you are given will impact how you would your state at the next visit, and these are the most elementary inductive biases. So. That's where I think they shine, giving you a way to have control over what you think the system should be encoding, what type of structure it should be discovering. And the idea of deep graphical modeling or leveraging deep neural networks in this case is to say there are things that I don't know in terms of the structure that is to be discovered, and I'm okay leaving that to a neural network. Right, yeah. But the things that I do know or that I want the system to to output, I want to enforce that. So controllability is really what's the the opportunity here with these latent variable models. Do you have any uh, opinion on like discrete latent variables versus continuous latent variables? Uh, maybe this is like a different setting, but um, it seems like with discrete latent variables, it might be more difficult to train a model than with continuous latent variables but discrete ones might be more interpretable. Right, right. I'm not sure I have a specific question, but I I I see what you I see what you what you where you're trying to go. The 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 way I think about it is I don't go in thinking about discrete or continuous. Mm. I just let the data that I have to model at hand dictate what the generative process should be. I like thinking about LDA and the topic modeling setting because it's really illustrative of what um, what we want to do when we're doing policy graphical modeling, aiming for you know interpretability. The topic assignments, there's no way to go about them. Those are discrete quantities. Yeah. Same as when you're doing mixture. Say you have a mixture of Gaussians. The mixture, the mixture assignments, they are also discrete by nature. So you can formulate when you separate specifying your model and learning from it, then if you know that these are discrete quantities by nature, you don't need to shy away from that. You you stick to what the generative process is according to those inductive biases, and then you deal with inference. Now, when you go to inference, you have different choices. You can marginalize them, which is what we did for the ETM embedded topic model and the dynamic embedded topic model knowing that, okay, we have control over the number of topics. We don't need to be setting it to 1,000 topics or 2,000 topics. That There's no such thing. It's small enough in many applications that you can afford marginalization. Or if you cannot marginalize and you are in, you are in a setting where there are, there are many categories for that discrete variable, then you will have to find approximations. To, to to do inference and there are methods for that people have worked on you know like gumball soft maths and all these things right yeah yeah but you have your model as it is you know involving these discrete latent variables for interpretable models like probability graphical model type models you will often encounter these discrete latent variables mm-hmm. yeah so yeah the 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 i in my personal opinion i think the effort should be spent on 
how to do inference in the presence of discreteness than trying to avoid discreteness. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because sometimes the kind of natural generative process, it's naturally discrete. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really nice perspective. Uh, it seems like you stayed interested in these topic models because then in the thesis, you also have this embedded topic model and the yeah. dynamic embedded topic model. Yeah, because you know what? It, 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 this pains me to see in the deep learning community, they don't care at all about topic models and that family. But there's a whole other array of, of domains, political science, marketing, the, the, in, in historians. They're the ones emailing me. We wanted to package your ETM, ETM, uh, ETM work into R. Those are that's the family of models they use, and 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 leveraging now deep learning within probabilistic topic models, we manage with the ETM to solve all the problems. I don't want to say all because that might sound <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, we, we solved many problems. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but in the probability topic model, you don't need to get rid of the stop words anymore. You can scale to very large vocabularies. Inference is fast and efficient. So you have all those desiderata that they were that you know that they were that's relevant to those communities. So mm -hmm. from my perspective, the ETM is a very impactful work, but that's not seen in the deep learning community because they, they don't really care about topic models. It's, the focus is not on on those things, but I really uh, that's one of the work that I'm that I'm most proud of because of because of all these communities that you know don't get looked at that often. Yeah, it did seem like a nice modernization almost yeah. of the idea of of LDA. Yes. Yeah, th that was actually what I was going to ask. Is like, are these things used in practical applications? And yeah, I think you already said they are. Yes, they they want. That political science student wants to write an R package for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait, let me let me give you a neural network version. <laughs> yes, yes, and it, it it enjoys the the qualities of of LDA, which is interpretability, and that's really the key for those communities. Communities they want to be able to have these diverse sets of topics and look at them individually, do assignments do representation for a document or any of the output they're dealing with. And yeah. Just in the last episode of the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, we had Martha White on, and she was talking about these matrix factorization type models. Yeah. Where some people who are just focused on deep learning might, uh, you know, start to forget about these models. But then yeah. uh, we were talking about how, like, in medical domains, interpretability is still valued a lot. And so these matrix factorization models are still used there a lot. And it seems like this is like the same case with what you're talking about here. Yes, exactly. It's exactly that. And it's not an either or. It's not either you get interpretability or you get predictive power. It's that you can combine them in a unique way to get both. So even if you care just about predictive power, you can still use these things. One last question on the topic models. Like, do you think that now we have a good set of topic modeling tools and you might move on to other things? Or do you still see this as kind of a fruitful research area to develop further topic models? Because they, I was interested in, in them because, you know, of the several domains that, that were using these topic models. And I want to be doing research that, that matters to Communities, not just right. working on fancy models for the deep learning community. So I, I wanted to do different things. And topic modeling was the canonical, probably graphical modeling um, um, approach. And I wanted to see how I can bring modern deep learning, deep learning advances to that area. Now, given how well the ETM works, and it's, it has many useful properties, scalable, you can do inference very easily you can do uh, evaluation very easily in for lda evaluation you'll have to run another optimization procedure at test time with etm you don't need to do that because you have the, that's what inference network amortization that's what that gives you too people don't talk about it often but it's very useful also for evaluation purposes so there's that there's the word thing so i feel like 
I I I I have my contribution on that on that area. If there are more opportunities, of course, I will be very happy continuing on contributing to that. But yes, I think the ETM work addressed some of the main problems in that in that family of models. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's some of the topics, if you will, that were in the kind of model section. And then you had uh, another section on uh, algorithms, two different algorithms, this reweighted EM and entropy regularized adversarial learning. Maybe to start with the reweighted EM, what kind of motivated you to uh, start working down this line? It was the idea started when I was discussing with John, whom I wrote the paper with. We were like, how can we do how can we do maximum likelihood? Because in the original VAE setup, there's this problem where at every, you know, when you consider variation at EM, there's the E step where you learn an approximate posterior. And then in the M step, you maximize the likelihood by conditioning, by using the, the posterior that you learned from the previous step. And the VAE is entangling all of that into one into into one step and doing updates simultaneously for both the the model parameters and the variational parameters and we were like let's step back and see what we would have if we did em like we know it in the it's a core algorithm in pgm so we're like okay in the e step you want to be learning you you, up, you do you know an, an optimization step where you learn uh, an approximate posterior you're mm -hmm. tracking the exact posterior and now we say okay let's imagine that at the in the e step we have the exact posterior that we have found the optimal posterior then let's plug that in the objective for the m step you end up with this expectation under the posterior conditioning on the posterior over parameters from the previous settings, let's call the time t. Mm -hmm. So you end up with posterior theta t given the data of the log of the log joint. And we said, okay, we can either learn the parameters now by sampling from the posterior using say HMC or any of these MCMC methods that give you sample from a posterior, but that would be too slow for learning purposes. So let's do let's do um, self-normalized important sampling. Remember, you have the expectation under the posterior, true posterior, but at a previous setting of the log joint. Let's do self-normalized important sampling. You do self-normalized important sampling. You have to learn a proposal. You say, okay, one way we can learn the proposal is to similar than the VI. You target. Uh, 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 that you target the true posterior using a divergence we say okay there's an opportunity here if you use the inclusive KL the forward KL from true posterior to your proposal instead of using the, 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 the KL the other KL the reverse KL that leads you to the elbow you end up you can leverage what we know about that solution the solution to minimization of the inclusive KL is moment matching. So if you specify your proposal to be a Gaussian, you know already what the true mean and the true covariance are under minimization of the inclusive KL. Given by, it's given by moment matching. So the mean is the moment with the expectation under the posterior and the covariance is the covariance with the expectation under the posterior of, you know, your latent centered by subtracting the mean. So we know the true solution. And then we can say, okay, we need to also approximate those expectations. There, you can just use amortization. But what was interesting is when we went from this pure AM setting and going to doing self-normalized important sampling and learning a proposal by minimizing the inclusive KL, we recovered algorithms that exist in the literature and that were analyze from a different perspective. We recovered the I-way, which made a big deal when it came 
as optimizing a tighter lower bound than the elbow. Yeah. We recovered reweighted wake slip by Benjo and Borenstein, which came in 2015. Uh-huh. The reweighted wake slip was presented as an important sampling extension of the wake slip algorithm. And the I-way was presented as a way to optimize a tighter lower bound than, than the elbow. But really, it's also an important sampling uh, uh, extension of, of the VAE objective, the elbow. And so from going from, you know, things, things that we know, we know how to do EM. Going from that in this deep learning setting, we ended up recovering those algorithms and proposing a new way of learning the proposal. So iWay has a way of learning the proposal in this framework. You can cast iWay as doing the same thing but learning the proposal differently. You can cast reweighted weight slip as doing the same thing but learning the proposal differently. We propose now in the same paper a, a new way of learning the proposal. So that was that was super interesting, going from a different perspective, arriving at these, this generalization, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is really nice. Yeah. So, so it's like not only are you improving the learning algorithm, you're also providing a unification of the ideas. Yes. Yes. This idea of the self-normalized important sampling was cool as well. It, it seems like you were using it at multiple levels, like you were using it at the top level. And then I think in order to estimate the proposal distribution, you were then using self-normalized important sampling again. Yes. And it like kept coming up. It was, it was interesting. <laughs> it, might, it might look circular, but you, you, you just follow the loop and what proposal to use where. There was in the paper, yeah. you have this new name. Like, of course, you have proposal. You, then we say, okay, we need to have a name for this other proposal that we call it a hyper proposal, which is the proposal to learn the proposal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hyper proposal, hyper objective, because there's a second level that comes. Does this have any limitations compared to like the usual elbow? Yes. Self-normalized important sampling comes with high variance, especially if you're in high dimension. So that covariance, remember I mentioned that the proposal, you can set it to be a, a full Gaussian, where the covariance and the mean are found by moment matching. So the covariance because it's a covariance, you need it to be, you know, well-defined. There's a restriction that that puts in the dimensions of the latents. So that's another restriction. The, the unification is a good thing. And, you know, you have a tight, um, a, a, a more faithful objective to the log marginal likelihood. But, it, yeah, it does come with high variance if you are in high dimensions. Yeah, I, I found this really interesting and something came to mind where um, some people who were, you know, just learning about VAEs said, uh, you know, why can't we just consider a VAE as an autoencoder with a KL divergence regularizer? Yeah. And like, why do we have to learn all this stuff about elbow and all that? And now I kind of want to say, like, go to Aji's thesis, <laughs> because here it, it's clear that you had this, like, this really familiarity with this elbow. And then that allows you to think, okay, like how do we improve upon this or how yes. do we use this in a different setting? Yes, my whole, all the work that I did during my PhD came from that perspective of, you know, statistics and PGM and, and trying to formalize things a little bit more or coming from that, that perspective and trying to find um, generalizations and things like that. But your students are actually right. They can also see the VA as a regularizer to encoder that's if you are coming from the deep learning community right, right, right. you know you're with an auto encoder you know that it's really good for dimensionality reduction so you can cast the VAE also as just a way to have an auto encoder that can also give you samples so you paid off recognition error reconstruction error with the ability to sample from your model that's how I see it as well. That's another way of seeing it that, that I find also nice, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So both perspectives are, are good to have. Yeah. So then looking forward, do you think that do you think that we've settled on what is a good way of training these models? Or do you see this as another research area uh, that'll be improved in, in the coming years? 
I think that's a good segue to the to the interview regularizer. But so you're learning. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, because if you take if you take um the VAE paper and you separate, which they did there, which is really nice. You, you separate the model and your 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 inference algorithm, then you can say instead of using trying to to do maximum likelihood on on this deep latent variable model, which is that I put a joint distribution over the data and these hidden latent hidden random variables, the latent variables by sampling from some prior and then conditioning that sample, passing it through a neural network to get the, to get to my likelihood instead of uh, fitting that model with what they do for the with the VAE, you can imagine using a different algorithm. So that's what I did in in one of the other one of the other words that I'm most proud of for my PhD. I mentioned the ETM Presgan is the, the, the other one because it, it deviated from how people were approaching the mode collapse problem for GANs, and I think it's because they were they were um, coupling the learning framework that the GAN offers with the modeling assumption on the data that the GAN was making. So if you go from the um, idea that my model is the same one that the VAE is optimizing, but then say, instead of using amortized variational inference like the VAE is doing, let me use adversarial learning on that model and see what I get. Adversarial learning here, not as people use in the literature to mean learning with adversarial examples, but you know the minimax game in GANs. That's right. what I yeah. Leverage that in these deep latent variable models. You do that, you will run into the same mode collapse problem. But you can now you have now more flexibility to to do things like entropy regularization. Because now the entropy actually does exist. Is well defined and you can find a way to maximize it. That's the whole idea behind the press gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what is the what is the difference between like the normal view of the GAN and the probabilistic graphical model view of the GAN? The 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 original view of the GAN is to say, let's learn to sample. Mm-hmm. Let's learn to sample. We don't need to be imagining any densities or any model. Let's just learn to sample. One way to sample is to take noise pass it through a neural network and take the output. That's your sample. And you learn that with adversarial training. So adversarial learning. So I have to introduce this auxiliary neural network called a discriminator that will try to put high, put high likelihood, likelihood on my observed data and low like, likelihood, sorry, on, on my generative samples. And you have these two balancing each other. When you do that, you're limited because then you don't have a density over your over your samples. Right, right. And what that prevents you from doing is you won't be able to do evaluation in the traditional sense. Like um, looking at what looking at generalization, for example, by saying, okay, how much probability does my model assign to this new sample? You won't be able to do that. So in the GAN community, because they couldn't do that, you will have to find a way to evaluate. So they look at sample quality measures like FID, inception score, KIE, all those other metrics. And that also actually that reflected on on what what was the focus, which was good image generation. And that's that's a good that that's a good objective to be having. But you're also um, shying away from these all these other things that you can do. When you come from the probabilistic modeling perspective, meaning you have your well-defined joint distribution over latent variables and observe the data, and you apply the same minimax game to that, now you have a way of evaluating generalization because it's well-defined on top of being able to also evaluate sample quality using FID, inception scores, or KID. But you now also have a way to have a better optimization procedure. You can now try to prevent mode collapse by adding an entropy regularization term. So there are a lot of things that that come handy, come in handy. Another thing that we didn't add to the paper that you can do 
with this pluralistic perspective is that you can now, once you train, say, um, the press gun, you, you can fix the generator. That's a generative model, right? You can fix it and try to do representation learning. And you will be able to do that by fitting, by maximizing elbow, for example, like you would do for a VAE, because the density also is well-defined. So you can afford all these things while benefiting from, from GAN sample quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, high sample quality, now you, you have more diversity because you have this entropy regularizer and you can do um, representation learning after training if you, if you want to. And the, the only difference between these two perspectives, between these two approaches is coming from a different perspective. Right. Of this is my model and I can use any algorithm, explore any algorithm on that model. That's how I always come into these things. I try to say, what are the choice points? What are the, what are the different modules and how can I innovate by, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is a really nice idea, and it's one of those things where when you see the idea written down, in retrospect, it's like, oh yeah, that does yeah that does make sense. Like, if we want to prevent the med collapse, yes, then we should try to maximize the entropy. Yeah. So I thought it was a really nice solution. Yeah. I think I'm forgetting the details. How is the entropy computed? Is that expensive to compute? It's the you don't need to compute the entropy. That's the nice thing there too, because we're doing stuff gradient descent ultimately all you need is to have gradients approximately yeah so you can tractably approximate the gradients because you already are in a situation where you have a sample from the posterior and so you only need to unroll hmc for like to get two two samples two burning samples and then two samples to approximate the expectation one nice thing that i that I have in the dissertation that I didn't have in the paper is that actually when you when you assume a Gaussian likelihood and you decide to um you know we had to add noise to also the real samples in order to for stable learning because otherwise the discriminator can just exploit the added noise in the output to distinguish between samples from your generative model to samples from the data. When you do that and you now, instead of uh, regularizing the noise by truncating it, if you actually minimize the entropy of the noise, this is not the entropy of the generative model which you are maximizing. If you add a regularization term for the variance of the noise you're adding, then you end up with a mutual information regularizer, which is super interesting. I see, yeah. So if you combine the entropy regularizer with a variance, entropy minimization of the noise you're adding, then the whole regularizer ends up being mutual information between X, your data, and Z, the latent, under the specified model. And then here, is this also kind of agnostic to the specific GAN loss that's used? Like, could you use this with the Wasserstein GAN? Yeah, yeah. And you can use it with different architectures. We we looked at DC GAN, which was the first architecture that really worked worked well. Then we looked at more recent ones like Style GAN. But yeah, it's also agnostic to the underlying architecture or or the original GAN loss. You can take any GAN loss and add this regularizer and use the same algorithm. So maybe now we could talk about the future. Mm-hmm. So you'll be starting uh, next year, next September. Yeah. Uh, as a professor at, at Princeton. So yeah. first, congratulations. It's a great yeah. achievement. And um, do you have any research directions in mind or like visions you have for what you want to do in the meantime and what you want to do once you're there? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very excited about everything that I told you about and taking it further. More generally, the, the research question that encompass everything that I've worked on so far and what the opportunities are is how can we align AI with human desiderata? Mm-hmm. And I think the deep probability graphical modeling framework is very promising for answering that question. If you consider like current large scale systems like GPT-3, 
do they lack? They lack controllability. They are very capable of generating outputs that are semantically, syntactically correct and very impressive, but there's no way to control what they output, which is why you end up with those controversial, um, mm-hmm. controversial <laughs> situations with GPT-3. So they lack controllability. If you consider critical domains like healthcare, autonomous systems, automated conversation systems, the sciences, what do they require? They require controllability. You have um, you have to be able to control the output. You have to be able to specify inductive biases in a flexible way. And again, the deep probability graphical modeling way of doing things, which is okay. Let me first come up with a generative process by which I'm able to to impose all these constraints and then use neural networks for flexibility or any other um, devices such as low dimensional embeddings and things like that, then I'm able to be able, I will be able to enjoy controllability with this, with these AI systems. Yeah. In these great. Yeah. So that's the long-term vision. Yeah. So it seems like a mix of uh, applications, like some of the ones we talked about, where the controllability and the interpretability is important. And then probably also like core, like the core methods, because achieving these things will still require some more advances. The interesting thing is that you get controllability with interpretability. So that's why DPGM, the deep, my work in my thesis work is a stepping stone to where I want to go. You do have to have interpretability in order to control because how can you control if you don't know what the latent variable you're manipulating means? As far as like picking research problems, you wanted to do research on things that could have some real world impact. So yes. is that something that really will continue to drive uh, the directions looking forward? Yes, multidisciplinary solution-driven AI research, methodology-based with possibilities for different applications, yes. I think since since the PhD, you also started this organization called Africa I Know. Did you want to talk about the backstory behind that and some goals you have for it? Yes, I'm, I'm glad you're asking me about it because it's not mm-hmm. part of my thesis. I started it right after my graduation. I graduated on May 20, 2020, and then started the Africa I Know on May 23, 2020. It's based on this idea where, again, me observing sitting down and observing that people don't know anything about Africa and the little they do know, where do they get it? Where do, where do they get it from? The internet and the media and the media, because it's Africa only picks the negative stories. So naturally people, what they know, the little they know about Africa are those negative aspects. Oh, people are hungry there or they're all sick or they're all poor there's nowhere pretty to go, there's no history, or that historically they have been, you know, they need help, all those negative stereotypes. And for me, growing up there, up until after high school, I was always surprised when I was hearing all these things, that, okay, that's not, that's not what I know. Mm-hmm. Which is where the name name came from. That's not the Africa that I know. So that's how I the Africa came from, which is a counter argument to all the negative stereotypes about Africa out there. So it's a digital platform. Have all these young Africans and also more senior historians that uh, help on putting these stories out. Yeah, I'm very very excited about it. There's more in store, and it's not just a you know, a mini project or a passion project. I have a lot more things for it coming in the next few months. So hopefully all will go well. Yeah, I looked through it. It's a really cool project, like showcasing the success stories and then providing um, information about the history. And I think that that can then inspire other people then. Yes, and but you know what the challenge is? Is that... There's there's so many Africans around the world doing all these amazing things, mm-hmm. but most of the time, some of them that I reach out to, because of most of us, we are we are at least in Senegal, and I know certain other countries as well. 
it's like you you are raised to be humble to not be out there which is very different from america that's one thing that i love about america is the idea of having being confident you know mm-hmm. that not being arrogant but you're able to put yourself out there and value the work you're doing i was not raised like that i was raised to be you know humble just do the work and the 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 result of that is you 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 reach out to these amazing people doing amazing things telling them i want to make a profile of you so that you can inspire young africans reading the profile and they'll be like no i don't like those types of interviews because it feels self-serving i'm like yes that's what it might look at the at the you know that's what it might look but more certainly by emphasizing you and your work i'm actually you and i are actually helping all these young africans growing up and not being aware that you exist you see what i mean mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly yeah that's the challenge that i'm that i'm that i'm encountering right now a lot of them they do understand that but there are some others that i have been wanting to profile that refuse the interviews because they think that it puts too much emphasis on their work mm-hmm. yeah Yeah but I I mean I think the first step is is getting this platform up there. Yeah. And uh hopefully over time it'll you'll be able to just get more and more stories and then yeah it'll just grow over time. Right, right. Yeah, I'm excited about the people I'm working with and they're all very motivated and excited about it as well so I'm sure it will go well. It's been it's ha- it has received a lot of positive uh feedback so I'm confident about it. I think it's been a great journey so far i i look forward to everything that you're going to do at, at princeton and then also seeing where this organization goes and this was really fun to go back and and look at um the things that you worked on during your phd and what you'll be working on in the future thank so you. thanks so much for um coming on the thesis review thank you so much for your this is also an amazing idea the 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 day you set it up i was probably the second want to follow <laughs> the first ten. Now this is such a brilliant idea. There's nothing like that out there. So congratulations to you and thank you for inviting me to